Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Faye Fahimni. He is the author of Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. Welcome to the show, Faye. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great. So to start, can you chat a little bit about why you wrote the book Formation and what it's about, what the reception has been so far? Nigeria is a young country. I think that's the first point. So we have um, we have this population that is about, um, you know, you can almost think of it as the inverse of a country like Japan. So about 70% of the population is under 30. So I think that's the first issue. And then we also have... A so you mean, demand. so so young country, you mean young as in the average age is low, yes, not that yes, it, them, it has became a country in recent history. No, no, no. So it's it's young demographically, you know, very, very young. So most, the vast majority of the population are under 30. And we also have a kind of like a demand and supply problem with um, with history. So history has been very, very politicized in Nigeria, especially after the Civil War. So some people, the people who won the Civil War decided on a version of history. And what they kind of did was basically almost like so many different parts of Nigeria's history. And so I guess quickly to, to, to back up, so you mentioned the Civil War. I assume some of our listeners will not be 100% familiar with the Civil War. So maybe uh, just give a quick quick overview of the Civil War as how it fits in the kind of Nigerian national myth story and then how it's then you could get on with under, helping understand how it influences politics today. Yeah, so after independence, 1960, Nigeria, like many other African countries, succumbed to a number of um, military coups and the country was very, very fragile. And, you know, there were a lot of, a lot more strong ethnic ties than a national story. Things de- degenerated after the first military coup ended. So we got to the point where by a part of the country, a small, uh, a small part of the country, the Southeast, decided that, you know, they could no longer be a part of the Nigerian story after being on the receiving end of a number of genocidal attacks. You know, I mean, ethnic, almost kind of like an ethnic cleansing in the northern part of the country. So they decided to secede from the country. The rest of the country came together and said, no, you're not going anywhere. This can basically be understood as somewhat analogous to partition with India and Pakistan, where you had some attacks on an ethnic group that were kind of, I don't know, living outside their traditional boundaries. And as a result of those attacks, they said, hey, all right, this isn't working. Let's form our own country. But I guess the difference is India, Pakistan, Pakistan is its own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Biafra is not its own country yes, now. Yeah, yeah. so you can say probably halfway of the story of um, of partition where, you know, they, you had two countries out of that. So and the civil war was fought and the nationalists, if you like, the national version of, uh, side of the battle won the war. So a group of people, they, it kind of almost like they settled on a narrative. And Nigeria's civil wars, they kind of, there was an admirable part of it, just one part of it whereby after the war was over, it became a question of saying, look, it was brothers fighting. So the narrative of the civil war was no victor, no vanquished. So it was a question of saying, we didn't want to punish 
another part of the country for trying to leave. We are taking it, uh, you know, brothers for, and then it's all over now. So that part of it is admirable. But the other part of it is that, and, and this brings us to uh, what we're talking about, is that it kind of got to a, it created an atmosphere where things were swept under the carpet. So today in Nigeria, you will see a lot of people, especially those who are on the receiving end, you know, in the southeast of the country, who there's a lot of unresolved, anger and bitterness and injustice, whereby people were treated very, very badly, even though it said, quote-unquote, you know, no victor, no vanquish, but some people suffered for it. And, you know, so that that version of history meant that we we kind of shut down history, shut down teaching of history. So so history hasn't been taught in Nigerian schools for, for a, a while. And obviously really? when, yeah, yeah. So when you have that, demand side where people are not demanding history the supply side also fails so at independence nigeria had produced a number of um, world-class historians you know i mean these were very very good historians but over time a historian was you know reduced in status as a as a you know and then after a while we just didn't have all of that anymore so so we have um, nigerian history has has not been told i mean you have to when you combine this with the fact that you say we have a young population, it means you need to keep refreshing history. I, I, I always bring up this uh, anecdote I read some time ago, whereby a few years ago where I said um, in the U.S., since the end of the American Civil War, you can have a different book on the American Civil War every day since the U.S., since the end of the U.S. Civil War. I mean, you can pick your choice, whatever narrative or anything you want. But when I draw, it's not like that. You know, we are very, very there's a scarcity of history, and it's very, very heavily politicized. So we thought we could, Fola and I, my, my co-author, we thought we could add something, you know, for our own generation, which is kind of like the younger generation. We could tell the story of uh, Nigeria and, and a part of Nigerian history that is not very well known at all. People are a bit more familiar with things around post-colonial history or post-independence history since 1960. But the 19th century, when we think that the actually the real character of Nigeria was formed, it's kind of almost like a black hole. You know, most people don't don't really know what happened then. Again, it's not taught in schools and people are young. So so we wanted to retell that story. And we're not historians, you know, both of us are, you know, I work in insurance, he works in banking, you know, but we thought we could tell a story, you know, and refresh that story to to get people keen again. Insurance is definitely known for their storytelling ability. I, I want somebody who can who can weave a great narrative. I guess yeah, insurance. insurance is insurance is sold; it's not bought, as they say. So <laughs> you have to sell, you have to tell a story to get people to buy insurance. Yeah, they basically both supply side problem in the sense that they're kind of I guess I don't know if it was a legal prohibition or at least a cultural prohibition on developing this sense of history after the the Civil War because of the kind of risk of upsetting a, a relatively unstable political equilibrium and combine that with a very demographically young country where many people then therefore don't know the history. If they do, they're getting it probably an oral history that's probably heavily filtered through their tribe or ethnic group. So, and then this is an attempt to kind of fill that void in, in that market and provide a, a kind of clear, easy to understand history that isn't very well known. So let's start there. So like, where does your story start and and like what are the key i guess actors and stakeholders to help understand the history of nigeria okay so our story starts in around about 1804 which is when um a jihad kicked off in in, in what is the northwest part of today's nigeria and we chose that point because that jihad because jihad is also uh like somewhat big of a i don't know politicized term so how mm-hmm. specifically do you define jihad in this circumstance 
in this sense, it's, it's almost kind of like a state-building war, if you like. So what, what we had was, I mean, in theory, a, a jihad is a you know holy war, but then, you know, in the Nigerian context of what happened, a lot of the people who fought on the side of the jihadists were not even Muslims. You know, they they were they were pro, they were protesting injustice, if you like. You know, so in the setting of what, what was Northwestern Nigeria at the time, it was a very, very, um, there was a lot of grievance and a lot of unresolved injustice. And right into the middle of that walked a charismatic preacher. It's really interesting that you mentioned the state building point. There was an article back, I think it was four or five years ago when ISIS was at their peak in the New York Times. And I believe the journalist was an American, was an immigrant to America. So not bought up in all the like American culture war stuff. But she basically went and like, I don't think she she did like interviews of people living under ISIS territory and dug up all of the kind of like administrative records. And yeah, I remember that, that story, yeah. That ISIS was actually better at providing state services like trash collection, public safety, et cetera, than the Iraqi or kind of Syrian government whose territory they were taking. And obviously ISIS was doing all sorts of horrible abuses in addition to that. But it was interesting that it did have this really a kind of fundamental state building function that I think is all too often kind of forgotten about in modern society where people have an experience of living under largely functional states and so don't really understand what it's like to to have that, that kind of transition period. It gets lost in the, you know, when people are talking about a jihad, for example, or a holy war or caliphate or something, it all gets lost in the fact that people who wage these wars, they actually usually have ambitions to build a state. You know, they want to build a function. And the jihad kicked off. And at the height of the caliphate that came out of the jihad in Nigeria, we had a... Was, so before, before this, there were basically, I guess, several kingdoms. What were what were their food sources? I was actually curious when I was reading your book. Like, typically you think of states forming around, like, grain, because grain is easily extractable. And Nigeria, in my understanding, didn't produce much grain and still doesn't. So what was the primary food source that was sustaining these political units? So they had this, um, they were, it was a confederation of very loosely related kingdoms, you know, so there wasn't one big uh, state, but there were grains. And, and I think, um, yeah, James Scott, yeah, so he's, he's, he's written um, his newest book grain. Against the Grain, and he mentions this point about... Because he's Savannah. an anarchist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so he, he, he mentions this point about um, cassava states, right? So because cassava is a crop that is not easily stored, you know, you store it and then it gets it gets rotten very quickly. So it's very, very difficult to tax. So, I mean, Nigeria has always been a cassava and yam, you know, it's a tuba, it kind of like a tuba state as opposed to, you know, a proper grain state where you could, you know, harvest the grain, store it, tax it, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's that's what um, the food sources mainly were. Yeah. So basically you had this loose confederation of kingdoms that were mostly Muslim, uh, but not particularly religious. You have this charismatic preacher who steps in and starts this state building jihad thingamajig. Yeah. So basically, so these kingdoms, obviously they were, they were, mainly pagan, but then a nomadic group of people called uh, the Fulani who migrated across West Africa, they brought in Islam. At that time, were they moving south? So they were coming from like north, the northern part of West Africa, and then slowly moving south? So they actually came west, from west, right? So they, they actually came from the west in where, where you call the um, um, the um, like Mali and all those areas in today's West Africa. So they migrated west, but they also migrated, obviously they migrated south and across. So some of them migrated and then they settled in places. There, there were kind of two groups of them. So you had some who who were settlers, 
So basically, they come into a town and they suddenly, usually on the outskirts, and they were scholars. You know, they they were very, very well, globally well connected. So it never took them long to warm their way, if you like, into the court, into the local court, because they had information, they had knowledge, and you know, those kind of things made them made them appeal to whoever the, the king was in that case. And then you had the obviously the the pastoralists who kept moving around with their cattle, you know, and that's still something that resonates still. Till today, but the guy who led the jihad was uh, one of the um, what you call the sedentary Fulani. So basically, they settled outside of a of a town, kept apart. They were um, they were very physically different as well. You know, they were light skinned taller, you know, than the local people. So they settled out there, but then they were advisors to the king, to the local kings. They they had they were globally connected, like I mentioned. They had networks all around the world and then they provided advice to, to the king whenever they needed it. So so these guys were there and they, they also brought Islam. So you had a situation whereby there was a lot of injustice. Again, the um the local laws, arbitrary taxes were were a big bugbear for people. Your property could get confiscated with with no compensation. The rich did what they did, the poor suffered what they must, you know, those those kind of things. And this guy Danfordio began to preach over a number of years preaching directly against a lot of these injustices. He attracted a, a, a huge following based on this latent, unresolved injustice. All of that was going on. And he built up a, a real following up until the point whereby the local kings then had to make a choice. You know, what are we going to do about this guy? He's building up a following. He could overthrow us one day. Do we tolerate him? And you could see, you know, if you read uh, the first chapter of the book, you see various things happening, different ways of trying to tolerate them. At one point, some some kings would try an outright ban. One of the funniest ones was when a king came up with a law saying, you could only become a Muslim if your father was also a Muslim. So basically trying to break the, the chain of the religion transmitting through the generation. So, you know, ban Muslim dresses and all that sort of thing. And then until things got to a head, at that point, he had built up a following that was ready to say, you know what, let's take up arms. We're ready to fight. Let's overthrow these guys. Let's get rid of this injustice. All these things you're saying about how life can be better if we adopt your ways and all this kind of, well, let's put it to practice. So, you know, in the end, the king gave him an ex- a perfectly good excuse by launching an attack on him and his followers, and then the jihad kicked off from there. It was a very, very unlikely jihad battle because these were a bunch of ragtag guys, effectively, who had nothing more sophisticated than bow and arrows, and they took on an army, a local army, with about 100,000 foot soldiers and several thousand on horses as well. And somehow... They prevailed, you know. Again, these international connections that they had had meant that they knew about what was called the um, the square formation, which was an effective way of fighting against a mounted army, an army mounted on horses. They fought a number of battles. They lost some early ones, but they, they, they fought a number of battles and they were able to win. And that jihad then spread across all of what we know as northern Nigeria today. It was a complete war. We destroyed all of northern Nigeria. But out of it came that state of... Um, a caliphate, what we know as the, the Sokoto Caliphate. And at that point, it became the largest state in sub-Saharan Africa at that point in time. They modeled it about after the Abbasid Caliphate in, um, in Iraq. Again, these guys were very, very well educated. They knew, you know, so Dan Fodio, the leader of the jihad, was a kind of like the spiritual leader. His brother was a constitutionalist who actually wrote the constitution for the new state. And then his son, who became the first proper caliph, who was the one who became kind of like the chief executive who did the building and actually put the state, made the state physical in that sense. 
that's northern Nigeria, and that kind of starts off. What's what's happening in in southern Nigeria at the time? I guess right, also so western the, Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, so it's confusing like me because it's like it's like kind of curved. Yeah, yeah. The way we name the way we name things in Nigeria is a bit um. Is it, it, it your eyes are t- what your eyes are telling you is not what it's called. So, so when you say east, for example, you know the east is actually in the southern part of the country. But you know different things were happening. So southern Nigeria was more diverse. There were a lot more kingdoms. So at the point in time when the Sokoto Caliphate, the jihad was kicking off in 1804, the biggest kingdom in the, in the southwest of Nigeria, the Oyo Empire, was already disintegrating, broken up, and a number of splinter kingdoms had emerged out of that. So what we focus on in the book is one of them, a remarkable one called Abelkuta, whereby some people who are fleeing the disintegration of the Oyo Empire set up a new kingdom and, you know, a, a liberal kingdom, which was well-governed by, by standards of the time, and it became a magnet for all kinds of immigrants, including foreigners from outside of the country. So so you had all these different kingdoms. Again, the Benin Empire, which you know is well-known as well. At that point in time, the Benin Empire had peaked. It wasn't what it used to be. There were also other smaller kingdoms around who could challenge it. So, so Southern Nigeria was a lot more diverse, you know, a lot more going on there. And um, also about this time was, um, so in 1804, Atlantic slavery was coming to an end. Well, at least in the British Empire, it was coming to an end and it would have profound consequences and profound impact on, on what we know as Nigeria today because slavery and the slave trade were a, were woven into the fabric of society deeply. How much of the slavery was driven by the transatlantic slave trade and how much of the slavery was basically, I don't know, internal slavery that existed prior to the demand from Europeans, mostly Portuguese, Americans, for slaves, the the internal slavery had been had been going on for centuries, you know. So it it was a, a core part of life. It was just the way people. I mean, slaves were bank accounts. Slaves were assets. They were probably it was just how people, you know. It, I mean, do you have it, a sense of what percentage of the population was enslaved? Some of the numbers are hazy. At, at the height of the Sokoto Caliphate, you know, up to fifty percent of people were enslaved. But again, it, 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 it might differ from the way the violence in Nigerian slavery was not the um, kind of violence you had in, in the in sense that, you know, we have, I mean, we've all watched the American movies, for example, you know, so it, the life of a slave in America, daily life was, you know, beatings, um, whippings and all that kind of stuff. The Nigerian version was probably slightly different. The violence was in the slave raiding. Right. So in America, I mean, slavery was woven with capitalism. So you had, I mean, if you needed to buy a slave, for example, if you were in, uh, say, Georgia and you needed to buy slaves, you know, you don't get on your horse and go raid Mississippi. You know, you go to a market and you buy. But over in, in the Nigerian context, this, the actual capture of slaves was a very, very violent affair. The daily life of a slave was probably less violent than what you had in America. You know, slaves, there was some, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to minimize it, but there was some, mobility, social mobility for slaves. I mean, it's kind of like, right, in China, the eunuchs would end up being, right, advisors to emperors. Exactly. The, the famous one, like Zhang He, I think, who who had the giant ships that are like three times the size of And then you got to East Africa as well, yeah. Yeah, you have that in, in, in the Ottoman Empire as well, a uh, kind of history of, and this is just one, like, kind of mechanism for control is, how do you, I don't, I don't know if this was happening in Nigeria, but like, how do you ensure that your advisors don't try to overthrow you? And it's, Right, you make them from a different ethnic group that has no uh, connections to the broader mm-hmm. society, yeah. or you castrate them so they have like no influence in their heirs, and yeah. that basically limits their incentive or ability to kind of take over the governing apparatus from you and allows them to give like good quote unquote objective advice. 
Yeah, so I mean, we had some of that, but then this also was interesting because you know the things like the Eunuchs were they were they were a feature of the trade with the um, the Trans-Sahara slave trade. So this so was a slave trade with the with the Arab world, you know. So a lot of that featured in the book. Slaves were you know they were a daily part of life. They were they were just normal. What was it used for? Because at least in the U.S. South, for example, like the idea was cotton is right very labor intensive and relatively easy to measure the output of. So if somebody's picking like too little cotton, you know, but for example, with like tuber cultivation, it's not easily legible. Was it just like kind of basic manual labor that was uh, kind of easily supervised or what, what function did they the say? Yeah, so, so this, that's a, a good question. So, so yes, manual labor, farming, but then also porterage. So basically transportation, carrying stuff from one place to another. You know, I think that was the biggest driver of demand and this we see this happen after so before the end of um before the transatlantic slave trade really blew up in the um, 18th century and after the abolition of uh, the slave trade even internally we still see this so it was basically portrait people carrying stuff and nigeria um i i think part of this is because a, a huge chunk of Nigeria is what you might call the Sessa fly belt. You know, this Sessa fly is something obviously like uh, it has really plagued Africa for a long time and it made it difficult for, uh, it made animal husbandry very, very difficult or ne- next to impossible. You know, so horses, cows or whatever, it will be very, very difficult to breed and raise them in, you know, in huge chunks of Nigeria just because of this tripus nosomiasis, which attacks animals. So, you know, human beings, were pretty much like the biggest uh, forms of transportation. So, so that was the main, that was the biggest thing that that drove the demand for, especially after the foreign demand collapsed. Pottery, basically, you wanted to move things across the country. You, it was human beings. You put them on their head and then uh, you carry them around. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So let's let's then go back to the south. You were focusing on the Oyo Kingdom, and that was kind of an offshoot. Now I forget the name of the previous one, the Disintegrating Kingdom. Yeah, so yeah, Benin and Oyo, yeah. Yeah, and so so was it a, a was Oyo the offshoot of Benin? No, no. So Oyo was um, was an empire on his own, a large yeah. empire. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and then there was the there was the offshoot of that whose name I forget. That was the Abelkuta. So we had a okay, cha- Abelkuta, which is what we had a chapter on in the book here. So this was a small kind of like kingdom, and it was basically people fleeing the disintegration of the Oyo Empire, who then found refuge. Um, Abelkuta literally means under a rock, and there's a big rock in that town, which is what you know people fled there. And they were able to, but, but we profiled them as um, an example of a new state, a new state that was formed. And sort by, of like cosmopolitan, a little bit cosmopolitan, like kind of what the Netherlands was to Europe in like out of the 16th, 17th century. Yes. So you can, yeah, you can say that. I mean, they, they, they then, you know, they formed all of this. And then it was quite open, remarkably open in terms of people from all everywhere. And then you also had the dynamic of, especially the dynamic of, um, now when the transatlantic, you know, slave trade became illegal, the Royal Navy put ships on the Atlantic Ocean and on the Atlantic Ocean, just on the coast of Nigeria, trying to stop any illegal trade. So what this then led to was that we had a, a whole bunch of, and people didn't stop just because the, the the Royal Navy were on the Atlantic. You know, they tried to watch out for when the, the, the ship patrols were not there and tried to smuggle people. But then the Royal Navy ended up catching several illegal ships and then these illegal ships, basically, what they would do was, you know, once the ship was caught, they would rescue the the slaves on them, who, 
which who are being exported, and then take them to Freetown in more in today's uh, Sierra Leone, and then the missionaries, the the Christian Missionary Society, who are, who have set up, established themselves there. They have set up schools. We then take over. We then take these slaves, give them an education, give them new names, and then you had this remarkable thing which happened, whereby a whole bunch of ex slaves. Were taken to Freetown, completely transformed by education, given new names, and then they decided, many of them decided to return to Nigeria where they had been captured and they became a new elite. So, all of these people, some of these people again came to that town, Abelkuta, and you know, they formed a, a, a new group that they set up education, tried to organize states with their own ideas as well. You also had a number of black Americans, actually, a couple of them came who had heard that, you know, maybe there was something going on in in West Africa, let's go back and see if we can integrate in. It didn't work out for many of them, but some managed it. And then, you know, so you had this cosmopolitan state which developed in there. And it was never easy for them because you had all these, you know, aggressive states around them who constantly wanted to raid them for slaves. And the, the significance of their, of their story is that in trying to protect themselves, they facilitated the entry of Europeans into the country because they struck a bargain and said, look, you know, we need protection against this aggressive kingdom next door to us in today's uh, Benin Republic, you know, who were determined to raid them for slaves. And by signing that deal, they facilitated the entry of um, Europeans into the country, which had profound effects further down the line. Cool. So before getting then, I guess, into what that kind of, I don't know what to call the early colonization process looked like, you mentioned that southern Nigeria is much more diverse than northern Nigeria. In northern Nigeria, you mentioned kind of the Hausa being the dominant, is tribe or ethnic group like the right term? Probably an ethnic group. I asked another Nigerian, they said tribe, but all right, we'll go with ethnic group for now. Okay, so ethnic group in northern Nigeria, and then the Fulani came in as kind of a combination of like herdsmen slash scholars and ended up doing a jihad, taking over, creating the state. Were there other major ethnic groups in northern Nigeria? Yes, definitely. They were, they were, they were, I mean, they were, northern Nigeria is actually quite diverse as well. You know, there, there were a lot of um, smaller ethnic groups. But then what happened was because the, the, the Fulani were able to take over the whole. The, the remarkable thing about the jihad was that it was kind of like colonization. By by Fulani, so you had all of the initial leaders of the jihad. Do you know what percentage of the population was Fulani? Like, was this ten percent of the population? Was it thirty percent of the population? Hmm, this is a good question. I mean, I don't have any, but I'll probably say less than ten percent. So they managed to mobilize basically like themselves and coordinate amongst themselves, probably much more effectively. But then also amongst provided like for other minority groups that might have felt downtrodden and mistreated by the house that they were able to rally them and even some houses as well. So that's interesting. Yes. So, so I mean, like, I mean, there's a story we tell in the book about, you know, early on in the jihad went by when the jihad was still in, in Sokoto, today Sokoto, so in just concentrated in that part, the king of that kingdom, where Danfordi, where the jihad kicked off, he wrote to the other Hausa kingdoms and said, look, a small fire, that started in my backyard and I didn't attend to it quickly has now blown up into something else. So kind of like a warning to the others. Now it's remarkable that the others, the other kingdom didn't think that the response to that should be, hmm, let's raise an army and let's go help this guy out. You know, they, they took the message and then they, rather than, you know, coordinating themselves in any real sense, they just decided, okay, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to try and protect ourselves. So many of them just launched a crackdown on 
any local Fulani population that they had in their midst, which obviously backfired in, in many ways. All the, all the Fulani then just, just went and joined the yeah, rebellion. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, you know, a lot of this... What, what, what's the Star Wars quote? Like, the more you squeeze, the more will just, like, slip through your, fing- your, your exactly. fingers. And- <laughs> exactly, you know. So, and Dan Fudio had been preaching for about 20 years, you know, and in that time, he had raised a number of students. So he he was he had become a, he had become a popular scholar, and people from across a lot of Fulani from across northern Nigeria had actually gone across to study in his school and become his student. So so when the jihad kicked off, it was almost kind of like activating a, an established network. So a lot of people were there. Oh, there was a there was a, a jihad that kicked off in Sokoto, and they had gotten the upper hand. So they decided, that, you know, let's. Let's kick off our own version here based on whatever it was. So some of them had long-standing issues with their host. And, you know, just as you always do, you know, people who almost kind of like foreigners, they settle and then they have like uh, running battles with their host. And then the opportunity of a jihad came and they decided to to launch almost, you know, they were almost kind of like some freelance jihads that were launched, just taking advantage of the fact that, um, Things that kicked off in in Sokoto. So you know, but, but you know, to go back to your point that you mentioned, they they were very well networked. They had much better network. They could coordinate better. Unlike the their host states who were kind of like splintered and didn't work together. Yeah, and then you said the the South was more diverse, and you are referring to diversity based in, I guess, just like ethnic groups. So one question is like, right? How do you define ethnic groups? I mean, you mentioned at least House of Fulani, right? One had been settled there. The other was somewhat nomadic, coming down with different, I guess, physical appearance. You mentioned by the end of the book that there's a bit of a, like, forming of a new ethnic group, like House of Fulani. And when I was in Nigeria, like, you sometimes see it, them paired together. Sometimes you still see them separate. So how, how do you actually think about, like, defining, like, right? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit nebulous. But when saying the South is more diverse, I presume that means, like, I don't know, more ethnic groups. But how, how does that, like, how do you put, like, a, I guess, a little bit more of a, like, emphasis on that, make it more concrete? Yeah, so that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, like you mentioned, the House of Fulani, the the houses became Fulani in a sense, and the Fulanis became houses in a sense. So the Hausa language, for example, a lot of the Fulanis, you know, they adopted the Hausa language. The, the Fulani language itself is a very very inscrutable and difficult language called Fufude, and today it's only spoken by the the pastoralists. You know, those ones never integrated. You know, they don't intermarry, but the actual sedentary Fulanis, the scholars, they they intermarried very very much. Much locally, so so that house of Fulani identity was created over time. Now, in other parts of the country, it could be religion, it could be language, and it could just be you know. But it had it was hardly ever physical characteristics, with the exception of you know in the north, whereby like I said, the Fulani were distinctly different. That was a migratory group. Well, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you did tweet recently that like one of your hypotheses being for the reason there's so many languages in Nigeria is slavery and a way to protect yourself from getting raided by slaves is to speak another language. And that means that it's a little bit more costly to right, like enslave you because then you don't know what you're saying, et cetera. And so it's, it's a little bit of a defense mechanism, but that might be a defense mechanism that doesn't have any underlying, I don't know, right? Like migratory characteristics. It's just like we moved over that hill in this place that's hard to reach and live there for five generations. Yeah. Remoteness. So basically Slave raiding was a very, very violent affair. You know, you could wake up and people and your whole village is on fire. People have come from somewhere, raided you, and just taking you into slavery, sell you off to someone. So staying in a remote area, in a remote location, had advantages in that sense. So basically hiding in a hill, 
in a very hard to reach mountain or, re- or, or, or maybe somewhere beyond some kind of river. So my hypothesis is that over time, because slavery went on for so long, over time, that remoteness, and it prevented a kind of what you normally expect in a country like Nigeria that is not so big, but you have this multiplicity of languages and multiplicity of um, of ethnic groups. I mean, there, there are places in Nigeria where it's literally within walking distance, you'll be able to hear different languages, you know, there are different groups. Normally, over time, you would expect that that will that will sort of go away. People have been living close to each other. But. Yeah, so, so this is interesting because it sort of goes against the James C. Scott hypothesis where it's mostly grain states that are doing the raiding. But here you have, right, like cassava states, tuber states. Um, presumably some of the more coastal states are doing like a little bit more fish farming or something like that that are still engaging in this pretty aggressive, I don't know, like, right, savory project. It also differs from the James C. Scott hypothesis in that his hypothesis was a little bit less a like slavery qua slavery and more of a like, right, like farming as slavery, where you would raid, you would put them to work farming in fields, but then they would basically be unable to leave because they would quickly starve if they left. And so it wasn't kind of slavery, at least as we think of it in the modern world, where there's somebody like overseeing you, whipping, you don't own property. Here, you're saying it's, it's like a little bit of a mix between the two. It's not like full, I don't know, right, American Southern slavery, but it's also not this like James C. Scott-esque slavery, yeah. where it's, it's more just like putting you to work in the fields, you own property, but it's just like you're sufficiently sequestered that you can't really escape. Yeah. So, I mean, sharecropping was a really, really big, big thing. Basically, you know, uh, I mean, you own slaves and then you give them a piece of land and then they go work it out. So basically you take 80% of whatever they do and they keep 20% or 10% of anything. And if they don't, you know, if they don't farm or they don't have a harvest, then, you know, there's nothing. They don't, they don't get anything out of it. So it was that kind of relationship, which is why, like I said, it wasn't maybe as daily violent as what you would have in, in America. And it's one of the large ethnic groups in Nigeria, you know, in Niger Delta. And some of the origin stories are that one guy, cleared out a piece of land closer to the coast, basically to give himself a new place to trade with the Portuguese in terms of slaves. From this, you get an ethnic group, which formed over time, right? So he's sort of like the founding father of a particular ethnic group. And then the place where he set up as his own land was mainly to get him closer to the coast so he could trade a better market for, for slaves, that sort of thing. What's interesting in thinking about that as compared to, right, like the American identity with kind of westward expansion is that at least in the U.S., right, this was also somewhat similar. People would take their families, go out, start farming, but they always retained this kind of broader sense of identity. No new languages really sprout out, even looking at even looking at the more extreme examples with the Mormons, where there was a separate religion, there was a separate society founded. Eventually, they were kind of reintegrated within the American fold. They did have the similar, I don't know like what to call it, like frontier ethic, um, yeah, but it yeah. didn't lead to this kind of balkanization of society in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the culture spread, but, you know, it didn't it didn't form new cultures per se. It was the same same culture, same language, you know, which is what, what is really interesting about Nigeria, where you have all this, I mean, you have like 500 plus languages in, in a relatively uh, small space. And it looks like every time things broke off, you know, people broke off from a group, almost as if a kind of new language formed or something. I don't know. It's, um, I guess maybe because maybe a lot of the languages were oral, it wasn't written down. And then, you know, oral languages probably Are tends to much more, much more evolutionary. Yeah, um, yeah, over time. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so I'm going to mispronounce it. Avokuta, 
They were basically being threatened by the Benin Kingdom. They invited the British in as to become a protectorate or something so that they could right, keep their independence, cosmopolitanism. So that was the kind of entry point for the British entry. They were previously parked overseas, not overseas, like just offshore to prevent the slave trade. And now they're finally making like making a presence on land. So how did that play out? Like what were then the steps that occurred to end with kind of full scale colonization and, and control by the British government? Right. So this, this took quite a long time. So, you know, I mean, before the Berlin uh, conference, right? So European powers never gone, they, they pretty much stayed on the coast. You know, they were trading on the coast and basically buying and selling any kind of stuff they were doing there, just in the same way as it worked with slavery, whereby most of the business ended on the coast, you know, and people didn't really have an incentive to go internally into the king, into the country. But in the name of ending slavery, we had, um, there was a bombardment of Lagos. So, and again, this was kind of like led by some ex-slaves who had become what we call the Saros. So these were the educated ex-slaves and who partnered with the British to bombard Lagos and take over Lagos and basically in the name of ending the slave trade. Now, obviously they had their own agenda. Obviously the, the ex-slaves, they, they wanted to end the slavery. They achieved that. But then the British, it gave the British a foothold to get into the country. So they overthrew the local rulers, Put an end to the to the slave trade quite all right, but then completely took over any kind of trade that was going on there. So all of this persisted for a while until you got to the uh, Berlin Conference. And now, so what the Berlin Conference then did was basically say it set the ground rules for anyone to lay claim to territory. So in in the sense that you could not sit in Lagos or, or on the coast and then claim that you owned everything behind that coast all the way up to a certain point. The Berlin Conference said, if you own it, if you want to own it, you have to put down physical markers. And then this then meant that, you know, European powers began to push inland. Just basically, I mean, we had some comical situations where the British and the French were arriving in places internally within, you know, days or hours of each other and planting their flags, you know. So it became a, a, a great power competition because, I mean, Say you're British, you you control the coast in Lagos, but then the French have gone behind you to Abelkuta, all the places behind the coast, and then lay claim to it. It becomes a problem for you because, I mean, all the produce or whatever you're selling at the coast is coming from internally, so they could easily just block off whatever produce you're getting, and then you just become redundant at the coast. You're not getting anything to trade or anything to any kind of business coming your way. So you had to then lay claim to what was behind the coast and this allowed this meant that European powers began to push inwards and this this is where colonialism basically um came in. Before then it was almost kind of like European powers sit on the coast, do trade with the guys internally and left it at that. Those who went in internally were the missionaries and the missionaries they were not colonialists per se. They they dealt with locals in almost kind of like uh in the book we we refer to it as um local led development. So the missionaries coordinated and provided the education for the new guys and then they allowed the the um the newly educated former slaves to lead the kind of development. So so many of them returned, they, they set up schools, set up businesses, that sort of thing, until all of this happened for maybe roughly about 30 years, which is what we call in the book, we call it the, the Clapham sect era, where a, a tantalizing period in Nigerian history where we see what can happen when we when you have a focus on human capital development and a local human capital development model 
partnering with Europeans almost on an equal footing before colonialism, then actual colonialism stepped in. Okay. And so after that, so then you have the Berlin Conference, and then there's basically a race to just put a flag down and say, this is my land, so that, and they're mostly competing with the French at that point, and becoming kind of a bit more aggressive. The other interesting thing that you point out in the book is the importance of the Maxim gun, where they a uh, somewhat advanced piece of technology with rifles. It's like somewhat advanced, but then right, they can the, the Nigerians can just buy rifles from right French traders, whatever. But the Maxim gun is gun is sufficiently kind of complicated. You need multiple people. You need a I think what was it? You need six people to like carry it or, and or mm-hmm. fire it, yeah. and then yeah, you thirty people, yeah, yeah, and th- thirty people. So more, and then you also need like people who are specialized. So it's not just like you can go to a market and buy it. It's actually like there is this whole training process and that basically gave the British a substantial kind of weapons advantage where there was nothing comparable. And so that allowed them to actually really engage in in this domination project to a much greater extent than if they were forced to put big armies on boats down there. Yeah. So without the Martin gum, you know, we, you could not have had the kind of version of colonialism that the British did. So the British were able to get, a, get away with doing colonialism with very, very few bodies on the ground. I mean, without the Martin gun, if it was a rifle to rifle thing, then they would have had to put a lot of soldiers on the ground, uh, a lot of bodies on the ground. And then, you know, that would never, I don't think that would ever have flown in parliament or the government would not have been able to like, achieve that because, you know, whatever word anyone might say, there were there were some loud voices against colonialism, especially against colonialism in Africa. You know, people could not see what are we doing there? You know, what what are we how are we going to govern this place, for example? You know, there were there were minority voices, but th- those voices were loud in there. So it would have been very, very difficult to say, oh, we need to commit two thousand British men or, or 10,000 British soldiers to go and take over this place. But with the Maxim gun, and this Maxim gun was, you know, it was just a short period of time when the technological advancement just raced, allowed one side to completely race ahead. And, you know, there was just no way. You know, with a Maxim gun, 20 British soldiers could take on tens of thousands of um, local African soldiers and, and come out on top. You know, it fired thousands, hundreds of bullets per minute, whereas the um, the rifles could misfire, they, 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 were not, they were not very accurate and took their time to load that sort of thing. But the machine gun could cut down people by the hundreds in literally minutes. So so that that kind of was the a complete game changer in the sense that it allowed that version of colonialism to be to work, whereby you just needed just a few British soldiers, 20, 30, you know, send them in and then you recruit some locals. Again, this diversity issue in terms of slave raiding and the legacy of injustice whereby the British could show up and recruit 2,000 local soldiers very, very easily and then give them some rudimentary training and then give them some weapons and then they'll join you in battle to fight the Fulani who had been oppressing them, for example, for a long time, or some other ethnic group who have been oppressing them for a long time, they would just side with the British and say, okay, you know, maybe the British will buy us our freedom. And it was a rational choice for a lot of them in the sense that these guys have been oppressing us for a while. These new guys come up and say, okay, you know, and the British were very good at promising people freedom, even if it was just freedom for five or 10 minutes. They'll promise you freedom and say, look, if you side with us, we'll grant you your independence. So that Maxim Gun played a, a huge role in making that, that type of colonialism possible. 
So you have the Berlin Conference. It says then that incentivizes Britain to race in, plant a lot of flags, say this is our territory, so they can basically control the trade routes. You have the Maxim gun that allows that to do that much more aggressively than they otherwise would. So after then you have that, uh, I guess, conquest, then what does British administration of, and this is about where your book ends, but like what do then the kind of baseline formation after that conquest of setting up kind of administrative institutions look like in Nigeria? How do they treat the different, because right, it's an amalgamation. It's a bunch of different kingdoms with different histories, different religions, different languages. So how do they then try to govern all of these um, people who, who are fairly different? Yeah, so so I think the, the story probably begins with a guy called uh, Joseph Chamberlain, so who became colonial secretary. And he was a kind of like a maverick. You know, it was a it was a Tory position, but you know, he had broken two parties in Britain. He broke the Liberal Party, he broke the Tory Party as well. And he was a kind of a kind of like a working class Tory. He had very, very different ideas from the general establishment. So the words colonial development were introduced into the political lexicon by him, in the sense that, you know, he introduced the idea that we could develop territories even if we're not going to make money out of them. And he, he, he gave a speech in Parliament where he said um, it is the duty of a landlord to develop his estate. So basically you develop your colonial, not because of anything, because you own it. Before then, it was a question of, you know, what can we get out of this place? If we're not going to make money out of this place or if we're only making money out of the coast, then we only stay in the coast and we don't spend money on it. Whatever revenues we raise, everything must be self-sustaining in that sense. But Chamberlain became the kind of guy who said, look, we can spend money on this place because we own it. We develop it and and these are our territories. We begin to treat it like our own. And then that allowed him to justify raising an army, you know, the West African Frontier Force, raising a force to go in and actually begin to control the territory as if it was proper British territory. So all of that began, it led to the um, to the end of the uh, the control by private companies. So before then, you have what we call the, um, the Royal Niger Company, which is the forerunner to today's UAC, or, or at least parts of inside today's UAC. So the Royal Niger Company, you know, was a was a trading company that had money to use military uh, force to dominate all of the trade around the Niger. So the Niger River was the most lucrative part of the Nigerian territory, which is where all the trade was in terms of moving things in and out of territory. Yeah, but it was very, very fragmented. You know, there were different people controlled different parts. But what the Royal Niger Company did was basically to use violence to get rid of a lot of the local guys who had been controlling different parts of the territory and then became the dominant monopoly on the river. So that control then became, it, it was then the way the British government took over what you would call uh, Nigeria territory and they bought out the Royal Niger Company. So it's, been, it's somewhat analogous then to the East India Company where right, mm-hmm. the East India Company was a private en- entity that effectively conquered India and was using it for their own uh, revenue. And then over time, the British government kind of was like, hey, all right, we're going to basically nationalize this, bought bought out the shareholders, and then turn India into a colony. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Colonialism, British colonialism worked in this way quite a lot, where, you know, some private guys who, you know, some private adventurers who go somewhere, usually when they get into trouble, then they, you know, the British government would then step in. Uh, So it was basically trade, and then the flag. The flag usually came after after the the trade. So this was what happened as well. I'm, I mean, the guy who led the Royal Niger Company, he made he made a fortune out of it. He sold, 
he sold the business to the the, the company was nationalized by the by the British government, but he you know he got a good a very good deal out of it, and then. By doing that, the British government then began to say, okay, you know, we have our men on the ground. You send in someone like uh, Lugard, we have a chapter on, and Lugard basically becomes kind of like an administrator on the ground, actually attempting to govern the place. So, And this was where things got a bit different. So in the northern part of the country, Lugard gets there, he sees this pretty well established caliphates, which had been developed again in 18 over 100 years before. You see a caliphate with a structure. Even though at that time, after 100 years, the caliphate was on his last legs, was collapsing, but there was a structure in place. He had a tax system. You know, the tax system was there, but it was obviously riddled by a lot of corruption. He had all kinds of different things. So so what Lugar then did was that, you know, again, because he was a, you know, I mean, he only had about 15 or, or 20 people with him there. So what he did was say, okay, what we'll do is, we'll do a kind of indirect rule. You know, we keep the structure in place, the existing structure in place. You know, you have the sultan and then you have all different emirs, but then I'll just put a resident, a British resident, in each palace, issuing instructions to the emir. So basically, from the point of view of the people, so I mean, one of the stories we, we analogies we try to give in the book is that if you arrive in Nigeria and if you just were dropped into the country in 1809, you will see this uh, structure of the caliphate in place, you know, the Sultan in Sokoto and uh, different emirs across northern Nigeria all reporting and paying tribute to the Sultan in Sokoto. And then somehow you disappeared and then you came back in 1904, for example. You will see the same structure in place, but you have to look really closely to realize that actually, hmm, you know, it's the British now in charge, but they are behind. They kissed another ring. Exactly. So you still have your emirs, you still have your sultan, but this time around, you know, the instructions are coming from the British residents just right behind the throne in there. So that was how they, they governed um, uh, northern Nigeria. In southern Nigeria, it was a bit different. You know, in some parts of, there, there were different systems in different places. So they had to adopt in different ways, whereby in some cases you had to kick out the ruling the complete ruling class. So in Benin, for example, when the British raided Benin in 1897, they kicked out the whole ruling class. The Oba of Benin was exiled to another part of the country. And then the British basically put someone in charge to run the place. It wasn't like Northern Nigeria whereby they, they allowed. So, so he had all these kind of different systems, different. Lugard was able to govern all of the North using this system. He set up his uh, capital in a small town called Zungeru, just they, you know, created a new capital there. And from there, he issued instructions to his, uh, to all his residents. And then his residents issued instructions to the local emirs or the sultan. And that was how he governed that place. Down south was a bit different. But then, you know, at this point in time, the key thing that in those days, the normal way for a government to raise revenue was through customs and excise duties, you know, so which meant that having a coast made all the difference in the world. Northern Nigeria is kind of like landlocked. So the southern part of the country was able to pay its own way and actually even have so generate some surpluses. Northern Nigeria needed to be needed a bit of additional funding from London to make up the shortfall. So they raised they were able to raise money locally, they raised taxes using the existing taxation system that the caliphate had built in place. But then Lugar was constantly asking for money from London. So what they felt was that, actually, we control the South, albeit under different groups of people. Uh, we control the North, again, uh, under a different sort of, a different group of people. So maybe rather than having this whole business of, you know, surplus 
from the south going to London and then um, deficits in the north being funded by London. Why don't we just put them together as one territory and run them as one, as one group? So it was the amalgamation of Nigeria was pretty much an accounting decision. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you have that as somebody who works in insurance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, it was it was an accounting decision to to put the country together. Nothing, almost nothing more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, an accounting decision that's had some important implications. Well, so let's uh, jump to the modern era. But before we do that, France and the UK both had very different, I guess, like colonization strategies. France, I forget what they called it, but. Right. Their belief was like everybody be colonized. We can teach them to be to be Frenchmen when mm-hmm. which has this like degree of egalitarianism. And the British, I don't think ever really they wanted to, I guess, right, like westernize people, but never really saw, I think, their colonies as becoming full British citizens. One, is that an accurate representation? And two, like, how do you right? I mean, this is obviously a book on Nigeria, but you're well read. So how do you see the different kind of colonization strategies and then continued engagement where the France have stayed much more engaged with their former colonies. Most of West Africa is under the CIFA, which is basically a a version of the franc, now euro. Um, That's a much more stable currency, so kind of much more involved. So how do you see those different uh, colonization strategies like playing out? How do you see them as the the modern consequences? Yeah, so the French kept their colonies in a very, very uh, tight embrace. You know, very, very, they kept them really close. So you have things like people were elected locally in the colonies in West Africa to sit in the French parliament. So, you know, you had some African leaders who were elected. I mean, that didn't happen in British colonies. Britain's colonization was uh, almost kind of like on the cheap. They did a lot of stuff whereby basically we go into a place, what is the cheapest or the most efficient way we can run this place? So you could see something like, say, for example, uh, British colonization in Argentina was pretty much just taking over the banks. You know, they control the banks and that was it. So in different parts, which you find a lot more diversity in the British Empire than in the French Empire. And I mean, people talk about this all the time, but, you know, when they ask you, what is the richest former French colony? It's very, very difficult to say. I mean, you're you're actually looking at, there are not very, very many rich ex-French colonies. You will find some really rich ex-British colonies. You have Singapore. You You can find some very, very rich to some very poor. You know, so the British basically... They worked with whatever they found on the ground as closely as possible, trying not to spend too much money and running a kind of um, efficient thing. So they, they gave the language. They exported a, a simpler version of English, which was what was created called a basic English and exported to the different colonies. But beyond that, it, was, um, it wasn't as tight as the, as the French one. And after World War II, with everyone broke and the British finances completely short, the British effectively ran away from their colonies, you know, they basically opt and, and ran away as soon as they could, unlike the French who continue to exert, and, you know, many people say a malign influence on a lot of their former colonies, basically holding them in a way that makes it difficult for them to break out. Like you said, the, uh, the CFA currency, it's a very emotive issue now. I personally think that it has some advantages because inflation is a killer in a lot of African countries. The CFA franc, it keeps a lid on inflation in the sense that it gives a lot of stability. But then, you know, a lot of people make the argument and they have a, they have a very strong point in saying that, look, if you're going to have uh, stability or inflation or, or control on inflation, you should do it, let it be done locally. You know, it shouldn't be something that is, it has to be done for you by France several decades after you become independent. So, you know, those arguments, uh, they, they do have a point. I think the, the French... I mean, you do want, like, states to tie their hands in some respect, right? Like an independent judiciary, independent central bank. Yeah. 
those are yeah. obviously good things. But then on the other hand, right, like ideally you want the state's decision to be to tie their own hands and not to be the a, a foreign power, particularly a foreign power that was involved in their colonization. Yeah. So like, I mean, I'll give an example. In Nigeria, around about independence, you could, the highest level of appeal was to the Privy Council in, in, in Britain. You know, now, as soon as, you know, Nigeria became independent and then we began to have contests for political power, one of the first things the ruling party got rid of was the ability to appeal to the Privy Council because, you know, they did not want a situation whereby the opposition were taking their cases to Britain and winning. In that sense, you might wonder, you know, Nigeria was a newly independent country. Would it have helped democracy for, you know, the opposition to be able to have that outlet, you know, whereby the states couldn't clamp down on them? Maybe, but then, you know, independence is independence, I guess. So Singapore kept the Privy Council until like the late 80s. And I think that seemed to be the right decision for Singapore. Singapore is doing all right, but... Yeah, I mean, even New Zealand. New Zealand does not have an independence day. Powers were given over gradually over a long period of time, up until the the early 80s, I think. You know, so, but, but, you know, Nigeria, as soon as the contest for political power got intense, people, stuff like the Privy Council was clamped down on. It would have been better if... We had kept it maybe for another decade or another 15 years just to allow the opposition develop to a point whereby they were independent and then, you know, you could not crack down on them in that sense. But well, so that was the kind of uh, the way it worked. I mean, the British colonies got independence and the, the version of independence was more, more true to the word independence than, than whatever the French colonies got. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's now fast forward, right? At the beginning of this conversation, you framed the rationale for writing your book as to develop this this history that's been a little bit lost, uh, particularly among the younger generations of Nigeria. You mentioned the Biafra War, right? And I think we've gone through, we mentioned the Hausa and Fulani. The other kind of two major ethnic groups are the Igbo and the Yoruba, the Igbo being the ones who rebelled in the Biafra War, um, the Yoruba being kind of along the coast with Lagos, I mean, recently, at least my following on like Nigerian Twitter seems that things have heated up, right? Nigeria stopped like banned Twitter because Twitter kicked off Buhari because Buhari made a reference to the civil war and was like, don't make me come kick your butts again. So like, I don't know what's going on. How would make sense of this? Yeah, so probably we could start from the end. So basically, Buhari, you know, like I mentioned, you know, we had uh, the end of the Nigerian civil war was again, no victor, no vanquish. And even if it's not written down anywhere, there's a kind of agreement or gentleman's agreement that we don't weaponize the civil war in uh, against any part of the country. We don't use it to threaten the Southeast. We don't at least, well, I mean, you could have it, you know, at lower levels, but at least at the highest levels of government. I mean, you it know, seems like it's, it's somewhat similar to the U.S. where there's all of this mm-hmm. discussion about, I mean, not the statues. The statues were mostly, like the Confederate statues were mostly built in the 50s as a reaction to, um, of course. but military bases, for example, my understanding is that those military bases were named for Southern generals in kind of the 30, 40 years after the Civil War, which was a way of kind of reintegration, a, a way of saying like, you never actually succeeded, right? We were all part of one country, right? Mm-hmm. And that obviously has is continued source of a lot of tension in the U.S., but I see this as, I guess, somewhat analogous where, okay, you fight a very brutal civil war. How do you then right, like reintegrate these people so they don't want to rebel again while still keeping the kind of institutional structures in place that 
the the winning side says like all right in the US it's like right kind of 90% slavery how do you right keep i mean i, I was recently been reading biography of grant where it's really interesting like initially they thought like hey all right we won the war we banned slavery now we'll all go home like done and mm-hmm. then the the south was like all right so now they're free but now we have this like basically different ethnic group living here that has no value to us and is actually like threatening us because they made up a substantial portion of the, the population in some states. So then that's where you see the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, this really brutal repression. And then the North's reaction is reconstruction, which is effectively an occupying force to right, create these norms. And after about a decade, then there's a deal to, to stop reconstruction where the, the South ends up being yeah, an apartheid state for, I don't know, several generations. That's a long-winded way of saying civil war is really complicated <laughs> and reintegration is really complicated. Yeah, so, I mean, at least the U.S., you know, you could say there was some, even if not not perfect, but there was some, you know, so there was some good trade attempts at yeah. the, you know, the actual reintegration part. Nigeria didn't do well beyond the rhetoric. So the rhetoric in Nigeria was good. Again, like I said, you know, we came out and said, look, we're brothers. Brothers were fighting, but we're still brothers even after the fall. No victor, no vanquished. But then, you know, beyond the rhetoric bit, we didn't do quite well. We did not actually... Is it part of the challenge also that the Evos are known for being particularly businesslike? So there's kind of a... I don't know, natural that they might be overrepresented in kind of successful business communities. And then, did, I mean, did that add at all to some of the, the tension? Well, yeah, so some, some attention was a kind of like a suspicion, you know. So I, I don't want to over push the um, analogy too far, but you could almost see the Igbos as the Jews in Nigeria, you know, very enterprising. And because the the land is kind of more, it's one of the densest parts of the country. So they, you know, they, they travel out of the country as so well. They can do, the Igbos will do business anywhere in the north and the southwest, you know, they find themselves anywhere. They, they lift themselves up by their own hard work and, you know, they build businesses and all that. So, and were you know, they that, transitory than other ethnic groups? Like, did the Evos move to, like, the Yoruba, House of Fulani areas more than, like, the House of Fulani would move to the Igbo areas? Definitely, definitely. So, so you know, the Igbos, they, they move out of Igbo land a lot more and they, they establish themselves a lot more in other parts of the country. So one of the things which, you know, you know, some northern politicians actually said this quite openly that, you know, if we were to allow a merit-based system, you know, then the Igbos will dominate the civil service and dominate the military and all that. So, you know, you have stuff like what we call the federal character in Nigeria, which is the kind of system to prevent any one part of the country from dominating um, anything. So, so Nigeria got the rhetoric of the, the civil war, the post-civil war, we got the rhetoric right, but then we did nothing. The Igbo suffered in terms of, you know, there was no attempt at saying, oh, we're going to, you know, bomb you with investments, with, with love and bring you back into the country. No, no, that did not happen. You know, they didn't have bridges built in, in, the, in the south of the infrastructure. So you know, no sort of reinvestment, public rhetoric yeah. saying, no, like, all right, we're all part of the family again. But then kind of a, I don't know, a affirmative action program that effectively discriminated against EVOs. Yeah. I mean, not I mean it wasn't written down anywhere. But it was but then, you know, but you know, it was kind of yeah. So they, they definitely suffered for trying to secede from Nigeria. And, and you know, those those wounds are still raw, they're still there till today. And you get a sense that especially now, whenever things are bad, whenever we have an economic crisis or problem, people tend to 
it gets very, very disturbing how very, very quickly people start to blame the Igbos for non-existent problems. You know, they're, people, they're exactly, you know, middleman minority because, you know, people tend to want to scapegoat them very, very quickly for, for doing nothing, you know. And then you're, you're seeing signs of that again uh, today. There's agitation in across the country in Nigeria today. You know, in, in the north, in the south, there are people, you know, there are all kinds of people agitating for, you know, secession. So whatever is happening in Ebola is not unique to Ebola today. But then the president, you know, in giving his, his weaponized the civil war in a matter that was frankly quite distasteful for a Nigerian leader to do. Basically, he crossed a line that had not been crossed for dozens of years. Exactly. You know, he crossed the line and basically almost kind of like reminding people of a part, part of the country that, you know, reminding of, of, of the civil war. And that infuriated people, you know, it got on Twitter and then and then we, we, we have this whole situation whereby people in the government who have wanted to crack down on social media for years, they've been itching to do this for years. And you also have the Lucky Tollgate massacre from about a year ago, nine, ten months ago. Yeah, so in October last year, where you know the government sent in um, uh, soldiers to, sh- to you know to shoot at protesters, put an end to the protest if you like, because they felt that oh, um, Lekki was the ground zero, and if we shut it down, then maybe we'll you know stop what was happening. Or- These weren't like poor farmer protesters too, right? Lekki is kind of the most I don't know the, the richer area of Lagos. Yeah, yeah. so is there, it was the yeah, case you know, of politicians who have social media, right? You I mean you saw those some a lot of the clips going around Instagram? It looked pretty horrific. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there were you know there were pretty mixed you know crowd in there. There were you know like I said, middle class kids, but just generally even not just middle class, but actually lower class people as well who who came there again. You know, if you start a movement to fight injustice in Nigeria today, you you will draw a crowd. You know, in no time because there is so much burning injustice, unresolved injustice, in different parts of the country that we just we never money to resolve these issues. And even with the best will in the world, we don't have the infrastructure to handle justice. You know, we don't have a functioning court system. I mean, Nigerian courts have been on strike for two months now. You know, I mean, it's not even something, it's not something that makes the news. You know, you're not going to see it. It's just something that just happened and it's just going on in there. So even with that, you know, the, the courts are not reliable. They are not, you know, they're not there for people. So there are no alternatives for people to express this kind of burning. And so, yeah, in addition to that, right, you also, the other kind of, if I think of like Nigeria Day, the other, I guess, major challenges that I see are one, right, a lot of the North, there's basically a new, I don't know, jihad that is occurring. There was a Wall Street Journal article last fall, I believe October, November, that said like like the army has effectively given up the rural areas and only controls the cities now. There was, I believe, an attack. I forget, governor of some state, right? His convoy was attacked and like a dozen people left dead. Just a kind of horrific stuff. You have, then two, you have Nigeria as a oil state where, I don't know, like 80% of the federal budget is from oil revenue and the oil is primarily concentrated in the South. Three is, and this I noticed also when I was in Nigeria, like looking at the morning paper, is there's a kind of Fulani herdsmen that are encroaching on Evo land, which seems to be a point of, I believe, I, they may, maybe on Fulani land too, but at least I kind of saw that in reference to Evo land, which seems to be a point of continuous tension, where some of the periphery, you're seeing clashes with some of these ethnic groups where there isn't this kind of projection of state power anymore. Yeah, so so actually that that last point, you know, I'll start off with that last point is actually almost kind of like a climate change issue. Now, the funny thing is that this farmer um, herder crisis has been going on 
for it was one of actually the things that triggered the jihad in 1804, whereby, you know, herders and farmers will clash. And it's a problem that America had as well. I, you know, I, I always talk about this book I read a few years ago, uh, Red Meat Republic, where you had this whole, you know, farmers clashing with pastoralists, you moving their their cattle around. And they're obviously with America, with everyone being heavily armed, you know, shootouts and all that. But policy was something that resolved that. Now, what we have in Nigeria today is that the pastoralists, you know, they start off in the north, uh, you know, but they then have to move further and further south because it has never been a business. It has never been a properly run business in terms of the way these guys grow their cattle. They've always relied on on free food, effectively. And without free food for the cattle, the business just doesn't work. You know, so as climate changes obviously hit part of the parts of the north a lot harder, you have the situation whereby they then have to go further and further in, in such a pasture. And then the south is a, is a lot denser and, you know, yeah, they're a bit more urban area. So they're now running into, you know, people's farms and it's causing a huge amount of stress and a huge amount of clashes, you know, between people locally. So you have all these reprisal attacks whereby a Fulani uh, person with his cattle goes, destroys someone's farm, and then the person maybe poisons the cattle or something, and then the Fulani come back and retaliate. And, you know, it just goes on, on and on, and this spiral of violence. So so that's one side of it in the sense that, almost kind of like driven by climate change, in the sense that people have to travel further and further just to look for free food, effectively, for their cattle. So that's one bit. Oil is another bit. Now, Nigeria has always been a wannabe oil state, in the sense that, you know, the government gets most of its revenues from oil, but for the average Nigerian, oil means almost nothing. The average Nigerian does not understand. I mean, Nigerians have never received a payment from the government saying it was something related to oil. No Nigerian has ever received this. You know, not like you have in, say, Alaska, where people get uh, oil payments or something. No, you know, Nigerians have never received anything from their government in terms of saying you get a payment uh, related to oil. But now we are now getting to the point whereby oil can no longer... I mean, in 2017, Nigeria crossed, crossed a remarkable point whereby at that point... 100% of the oil revenues of the country, everything, could not pay government salaries alone. It's pretty much a post-oil country. Whatever an oil country is, Nigeria has gone beyond that now. So we're in the last days of whereby oil cannot even run the government alone, never mind building infrastructure, never mind funding education and all that. And the elite, you know, we, we make this point in the book about how you can almost look at slavery as a commodity business in the sense that there was no value add. You captured a slave, took them to the coast and sold and sold them to Europeans or something. In the same way, you know, a commodity business in that sense is whereby Nigeria is a country today that exports crude oil and imports refined oil products. So this commodity business, it gives the, it makes it very, very difficult for the elite to break out of it. As far as the ordinary Nigerian is concerned, if oil goes to zero today, it will probably have no material difference per se on them in the sense that, you know, they've never actually benefited anything. Sure, they haven't directly benefited, but presumably the oil wealth props up the state infrastructure too a little bit. And if the state infrastructure, right, it's already a pretty weak state. And if the state infrastructure further loses power, then that will have some spillover effects. It won't have direct effects on their lives, but it'll have some downstream effects. Yeah, it will. So, I mean, and this is what brings us to what is, pulling at the Nigerian state and, you know, tugging it apart now. People don't see 
any reason why they should be Nigerians anymore. And it's spreading alarmingly. The joke is that there are no Nigerians except outside of Nigeria. Exactly. You know, so it, when you go outside of Nigeria, that's when you become a Nigerian. It seems that you have a passport and then, you know, you're actually identified as a Nigerian. But while you're in the country, you know, so you we're having ethnic, what I call ethnic entrepreneurs. They are springing up everywhere. People are saying, we don't want to be a part of this um, anymore. And Buhari has made things a lot worse. I think it's one of the Federalist Papers, one of the quotes I like in the Federalist Papers says something about, I think it was Madison, who said, um, you know, energy in the executive is a leading indicator of good governance. You know, the, the Nigerian executive, there's no energy in there. You know, Buhari himself, he's, um, he's physically and intellectually not a very energetic person, just to put it, you know, politely. He, you know, the state is disintegrating right under his watch and he's not really doing anything. Let me ask the question then all the listeners are, are want to hear. In 30 years, is Nigeria still a state? Ooh, I won't put money on it. I won't nope. put money on it. I mean, you can count me as a as somebody who believes that Nigeria should stay as one country. I believe that I think Nigeria, the advantages to staying, we've, ne- we've not really tapped into the potential of being one country. But I do not know. In my whole circle, and I know quite a number of Nigerians, I could probably say I know one guy who I will say will fight to keep Nigeria as one country. And increasingly, he looks like a crazy guy. I mean, your circle probably has some degree of self-selection. How many Northerners are in your circle? Uh, fair few, fair few. But, I mean, there are people who now... The thing is, I'll probably say the best indicator is the is the change in people. So I know people who are Nigerians, yeah. sincerely, who believe in the country, that the country should stay together. But now there's this sense now, of resignation. Yeah, they're just saying, you know what, whatever... If the country is going to break up, let it break up and let's just go our separate ways and let's see what we can do. So it's a really perilous moment. You know, I wouldn't, unfortunately, as much as I believe that Nigeria should be one country, I'm not sure I'll be able to put any decent amount as a bet. You wouldn't bet on it. Um, Well, let's, let's end on a bit of a happy note. Why is Nigeria such a tech hub? Well, it's a, that's an interesting point. It's, um, you have a lot of, if you have a lot of Nigerians, you're always going to have a lot of, a sample of every any kind of person you're looking for. Now, Nigerians have lent to have been forced to live with so much friction for so long. You know, every part of Nigerian life is friction. So it's the same thing you're going to say probably say with Twitter, in the sense that this Twitter ban will go on in a matter of days. You probably look at your timeline, you're still seeing a lot of tweets from Nigerians in Nigeria. You know, everyone has quickly switched over to VPN and it just becomes another friction that people live with. So tech holds a promise of making life slightly better in a country whereby your daily existence is frictional. You know, everything you do in Nigeria involves a lot of friction and it's difficult. Getting electricity, getting water, just leaving your house and going out, taking your own money out of your own bank account from your bank is, you know, involves a lot of friction. But tech now holds that promise of getting rid of a lot of this friction and Nigerians have embraced it, you know, wholeheartedly. It allows them bypass a lot of the obstacles in their way and just connects Nigerians to other Nigerians across the world, but generally plug in the country into, you know, into the global ecosystem. So it's it's exposed a lot of um, Nigerians to what is happening elsewhere. And I think the promise of tech is, you know, it's just basically making life just a little bit better in so many different ways. So if you don't have to go to a bank to queue, I mean, growing up, my mom, you know, I I used to go to the bank with my mom 
uh, growing up in Nigeria. And it was just, I cannot remember a time, you know, when I was younger and going to the bank, I cannot remember a time when we did not have to queue, you know, just to get her money out of the bank. Today, you know, you can do so much just online by transferring. I mean, if you're offering a service that allows people just to avoid that level of friction, then you're going to get a lot of uh, uptake. So I think that's the promise that tech holds in a country with friction at every corner and every turn. You know, there's just so many problems waiting to be solved and tech can help solve quite a number of those problems. Oh, great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.